Hi, I'm Hugh Richards, Head of Digital Investment Banking at J.P. Morgan and the host of our podcast series, What's the Deal? In each episode, I'll be joined by global business and industry leaders to look at the trends driving deal-making today and how they are transforming businesses and industries around the world. A key transformational trend at the forefront of discussions today is environmental, social, and governance, ESG, which we featured in an earlier episode. We wanted to pick that discussion up again as we continue our firm and client's journey advancing the transition to a lower carbon, more inclusive economy. A major challenge in this transition is represented by the global food system. Nearly a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions are attributed to food. And with the growing global population, we're looking at a severe threat of systemic food insecurity by 2050. These challenges present opportunities to address both climate change and broader environmental sustainability at scale. But what does the path forward look like, and how can industries play a role in advancing solutions? There's certainly a lot to tackle in this discussion, and I'm excited to be joined by a guest who is not only passionate about this topic, but also has deep expertise in the food sector. I'm really pleased to welcome Eric Oaken, former global chairman of JP Morgan's Investment Bank. Eric was with the firm for over 30 years, a little bit longer than myself, and during his tenure, he was the global head of consumer retail investment banking. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me, Hugh. Well, as I said, we certainly have a lot to cover in this episode, but where I want to start is from a personal perspective. So, Eric, you've spent almost three decades in investment banking covering the retail and consumer industry. And I've heard you talk both personally and professionally about sustainability. So I have absolutely no doubt you're clearly invested in this issue. But why is that? And how do you see banks like JP Morgan attacking this issue from a macro level? Well, yeah, it's a good question. It really is a mixture of personal and professional. The personal is I have two daughters. They are going to inherit the food system that we put our own stamp on. I've had the privilege of teaching them about how their food is made, where it comes from, the impact of that system on their daily lives, the impact on health, people around them. And so you see all of this stuff around you. And I've gradually become, as I worked and looked into it from a, a business perspective, to become invested in where I think the world is going. From the agricultural companies, the CPG companies, food retailers, people who are trying to innovate and change, all the way into communities. And so we have a lens to see, is this system having the kind of impact we wanted to have? And what kind of stresses both, as you allude to, in terms of population, and then also environmental impact? How do all those things work together in a positive and negative way? One of the things I've always liked about the consumer space is I can imagine either I'm an end customer or someone I could imagine being as an end customer. And so part of when we're trying to figure out how businesses are going to grow, how they atrophy, is we think about what do people think? And so part of this is really a people problem, as you allude to. So you step back and you say, we have right now just under about 8.7 billion people in the world. That number is going to increase dramatically by 2050. It's going to be about 10 billion. So you have close to a 50% increase that you're going to need in the amount of food. So that's a bigger long-term problem. What you see in communities and what you've seen in the pandemic is that we have a food system that does amazing things, but it's not providing health at scale. And it's doing it in a way that's environmentally destructive. The kind of food you eat, what you buy, is going to become increasingly important. Where did it come from? What kind of environmental profile does it have? And what kind of impact does it have on health? Great. Well, I think that's a nice segue from the personal to the professional. So let's delve a little bit into investment banking and finance. 
Often the dialogue centers itself around the energy space. We're going to spend a bit of time here talking about specifically about food and agriculture. Why is food and agriculture one of the biggest challenges that we face? And when you look at the similarities to just carbon transition in general, how do you see food and ag comparing to a lot of the other sectors that we spend a lot of time talking about? Let me start by saying I am in awe of the global food system. If you think about it, you know, I'm kind of a history nerd, Hugh, so a little trigger nerd history trigger alert here for some people. If you look over in the late 19th century, you had sort of about a billion and a half people in the world. We've now grown that to just under 8 billion. And part of the reason we've been able to do that is we have a food system that's dramatically changed its productivity profile. We've been allowed to grow both in developed and emerging economies because we have a food system that has been, for the most part, providing food and protein and allowing populations to grow. What we're seeing on the horizon and why we would put this up against energy is, is a couple of things that you alluded to. One, population growth that we're expecting dramatically, particularly in emerging economies. And then we're seeing the real emissions impact, again, that you alluded to around greenhouse uh, gas emissions. And it's a huge, particularly with the protein system. You then step back and say you have a population issue, you have an environmental issue. Is there enough land to change that profile? And you say, we've got a land problem going forward you'd need something on the order of the size of two Indias, if you will. We have massive uh, water issues in the future. All of the things that are going on with climate are going to accentuate uh, some of the water problems we have. We have a soil issue that I think people are starting to wake up to. So a combination of the emissions, the soil, the water, and the fact that so much of what is created in the system actually gets wasted, close to 30 or 40 percent, depending on the country, all seem like a very unsustainable system. So you step back and say, if I'm going to have massive impact on carbon, you've got to have this be one of the central areas that you focus on other than energy. So what have we learned from energy? I think we've learned that you've got to have a transition plan that is multifaceted. It needs to be public and private. You have to change markets. You have to create markets. You have to realign capital allocation. And you have to tell people how it's going to feel. If you look at where oil prices are right now, a lot of that is a function of some things that are going on geopolitically, but a lot of those are a function of a massive and I think very noble turn towards focus on the energy system and the current system as a transition system as opposed to the end game. When you do that as quickly as we're trying to do, you're going to have the issues that we've had. Eric, I wanted to go back to that statistic that you mentioned because I'm having a very hard time getting my head around that. If I heard you correctly, by 2050, food production will require additional land equal to the land mass of two Indias. Now, is that an opportunity that I should be excited by or scared by? So you're going to see as people take their place in the developing economy, they consume meat and dairy. And so that's about 70% of that is that increase. We're going to see a 70%. So, so that's exciting because I think the democratization of you know, that kind of growth is what, what isn't sustainable and what you should be concerned about is right now there is not one technology or one alternative that's going to work. You have to have multiple different solutions. And as I think you and I've talked about, Hugh, we think the primary focus is primarily around alternative forms of protein. It's primarily around different farming systems. And it's about the elimination of waste. Behind that are a lot of interesting strategies and thoughts and all of that. But that's what I think I would get people concerned and drive them to action, both corporate, all stakeholders. 
a wise banker once said to me, and I think it might have been you, Eric, was that as bankers, we do two things. We give strategic advice to our clients and we move capital from those that have it to those that need it. Mm-hmm. And on the latter side of this, obviously, to fuel a lot of this innovation, to fuel a lot of the problems of the size that we're seeing, whether it's at the ESG space broadly, defined by energy, or specifically what we've just described in the food sustainability space, it's going to require an enormous amount of capital. Mm-hmm. How do you see that, the current state of that, and what do you see as the, the catalyst for acceleration of a, of a rapid transfer of available capital to fund this need? And one is moving capital from where it's accumulating to where it's needed. So making sure that people realize this is as interesting and as important as energy transition and as transportation transmission. So if you go back and look at capital flows, which we've shown you, Hugh, this looks like the electric car financing market five to seven years ago in terms of the scale of the deal is the amount of capital. So it needs to be more capital but also allocated the right place. Secondly, you need to have good advice for both emerging companies, also incumbent companies. We have a lot of great companies out there who provide a very important role in the food value chain. We have to come up with ways with them through investment, through the proper conversation with their shareholders, through doing the right acquisitions to allow themselves to transform. And that's as much of our dialogue as it is with the latest and most important company, new companies. Interesting. And that, that's where I want to go next. As we obviously look at the amount of innovation, as you mentioned earlier, that's going to be required in this space. We're seeing that sort of fast growth coming to the EV space is needed increasingly around things like other sources, alternative proteins, enhanced farming, et cetera, innovative ways of disposing or decreasing of food, food waste. How do you see the current state of play there? Obviously, we're all very familiar as consumers and probably bankers with the Impossibles and other alternative protein providers of the world. You know, how do you sort of pull the spaces that are out there battling for the innovation dollar? Kind of where do you see us in 2050 or in the road to 2050? About which of those sectors will will attract the initial phases of this early growth capital? It's a good question, Q. There's probably about seven or eight buckets where we see real innovation here going on. They're around, you know, as I alluded to, agricultural biotechnology. This is, you know, inputs really at the base. As you mentioned, innovative foods. That's not just plant-based. It's fungi-based, cultivated meat. That's a huge part of it. And then there's the entire farm management midstream system where uh, allowing farmers, big and small, to do things differently through software, through the Internet of Things, through marketplaces. And then there's a lot of great work being done around robotics, novel farming systems, and sort of bioenergy and biomaterials. All of these buckets that I've mentioned If I had to predict in 2050, I think you will see real innovation around food innovation and alternative proteins. Protein is the problem and the opportunity. So whether it's plant, fungi, cultivated, that will be a huge opportunity. You will see both from a soil management perspective, a technology, a software perspective, marketplaces, you will see people creatively destruct that. And then lastly, people will step back and say, it's unacceptable that there's this much waste. So I think all of those issues will be the areas that will be addressed. What will be really interesting, though, is you have emerging, I'm speaking mostly about opportunities right now in the sort of four or five big producers, countries that have the capital and the existing incumbent system. What is really interesting is if you think emerging economies actually skip 
whole phases of development. And the example I had given before is some of the Asian economies, if they were to decide to say as their populations become more interested in the middle class and protein, we're going to skip the entire agricultural chicken and beef system that you guys created. We don't have the land. We don't have the water. We don't have your blessings in that respect. So we're going to teach a generation of younger people that plant-based meat is the right direction or cultivated meat. Those done at scale have the opportunity to completely transform that. So I think in 2050, you'll see these countries looking very differently. And the analogy my team is tired of hearing is it's a little bit how, for example, in China, they looked at department stores. They said, I understand why you guys had department stores for the last 100 years. That's interesting. We're going to do everything on our phone. And I think plant-based or cultivated meat could be effectively the same thing. I think it's a fascinating insight because, as you said, it's been demonstrated both in the retail space, as you brought up, also very clearly in the payments space where we've had entire economies skipping the credit card phase mm-hmm. and going through mm-hmm. all payments. I think it's a very, very apt analogy with, with this as well. But I think one of the great positions that we have at JP Morgan, and I want to get your perspective on this, is that we cover both, we have relationships with both the incumbents that have developed, as you said, are awesome food supply system throughout the past centuries, as well as these emerging incumbents that are looking to disrupt or take advantage of the new technologies and new trends that are emerging. Can you give me your perspective, and you mentioned creative destruction, in terms of how some of the incumbent players are looking at this and how they view their perspectives for their role, their critically important role in in, in transitioning to another. So you will find very thoughtful conversations with all of them about what businesses do I need to think about divesting? What businesses do I need to think about either incubating or buying? What sort of a compact am I going to have my shareholders if I'm a public company, which most of them are, about how that's going to feel and what it means for returns and timing and all that? And they're generally adding people in the organization and at the board level who care about these things. And so the really good companies are doing a couple of things. They're showing a version of the framework that we talk about internally around sustainability, which is you got to commit to making some change. And I think the really good food and ag companies are doing it, have plans that are measurable about what your supply chain, what your systems look like, has set you know, really ambitious but realistic targets. Tell your top shareholders what this is going to look like and feel like and get the right people on the board and the management. You then need to invest. Almost all of this involves primarily investment and not divestment to transform, whether it's acquisitions, growth areas. And then you have to fund these things to grow. And there are ways to do that that we've talked about through venture capital entities, which many of these big ag companies and food companies have, through outside investments of either public investors who believe in that transformation or private investors. There are debt markets, which you know everyone's well aware of on the sustainability side, that are being used to do green debt. And I think also, lastly, increasingly, they're looking at partnerships. I think the tech community does some things really well. I think things they do well are partnerships. And the desire on the part of U.S. food and ag corporates to partner has never been more open. So if it doesn't mean you have to buy the company, you can partner to get the technology, we can do things together. So those are really the lanes I see them doing it. But they're not in denial about it. They understand how important their current mission is, and they want to be a part of the mission of the next phase. So Eric, take us to 2030 when we head home for dinner. What's going to be on our plates? In our hovercraft? That we're, <laughs> you're not going to see 
something that looks radically different in my view. So what's interesting, we're not going to see a banishment of, for example, chicken or meat. What you will see is several times a week, people consuming alternative proteins, in many cases, matching those and mixing those with existing protein. You will see a table of people that probably understand in a much more fundamental way where the vegetables and fruit on their plate came from and are comfortable in the origin story that this was done in a way that uses a lot less land, a lot less water, a lot less transportation. And so, you know, I envision it as many of the same things that we eat combined with other things that we're not currently eating and they're being innovated. And it's, it is a mixture. So, I think that will only involve consumers deciding that they care. If they don't care, they won't matter. I think you'll also see a lot of innovation around food as medicine. So part of what we will be increasingly focused on in food is the nutritional content of it and how it prevents disease. So if we argue that both health outcomes, cost, obesity, and in developing countries, undernourishment are all big problems we will understand more fundamentally what that food does in a preventative way. And that's a whole nother podcast, but sort of my vision of the future. Terrific. Well, not to come up with too obvious a pun, but I find that whole vision fairly appetizing. So I thought you were going to say food for thought, but <laughs> both puns are equally bad. <laughs> Well, great, Eric. As, as anticipated, this is a very topical conversation, and it's been wonderful to bring your perspective both to how you feel about this personally, but also how the firm and our businesses and our clients are organizing around this, as I said, what is a challenge, but is also an incredible opportunity. So we're out of time, but I'd like to thank you, Eric, so much for joining us and look forward to talking again with you soon. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. If you're all enjoying this conversation as much as I am, you can subscribe to this as well as our other podcasts to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. JP Morgan's At Any Rate, Market Matters, and Tech Trends are all available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. This material was prepared by the Investment Banking Group of JP Morgan Securities, LLC, and not the firm's research department. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase, sale, or tender of any financial instrument.